0: podcast number 543 for the 14th of May 2017. This week, if you're thinking about buying a new computer, perhaps you're also pondering the choice of operating systems. Windows, Mac OS, and various flavors of Linux are the primary choices, but you have some others. In short circuits, the Windows feature that minimizes all other windows when you move one window back and forth rapidly might not be to your liking. There's a way to eliminate it. Fingerprint authentication available on many smartphones and some notebooks and tablets may not be as secure as we'd like to believe. In spare parts, only on the website, Data as a Service claims to improve business resiliency, a Dutch philosopher would like us to understand that we have entered what he calls a new evolutionary phase, and your smartphone can help when the weather turns nasty. Microsoft may still own the desktop market, but Apple continues to make slow progress beyond its graphic design user base. There's also Linux and maybe even Chrome OS. So, if you're thinking about buying a new computer, perhaps operating systems are on your mind, too. Maybe you think one is better than the other? Well, an operating system is an operating system. Windows isn't perfect. Mac OS isn't perfect. Linux, regardless of the distro being considered, isn't perfect. Linux? Distro? In the Linux world, a distro can be thought of as a version. Ubuntu is a distro. So are Fedora, Arch, Red Hat, Mandrake, and dozens, maybe hundreds of others. Historically, Linux users have been like home auto mechanics, uh, people who enjoy getting their hands dirty and who understand what's going on under the hood. Some current versions of Linux, though, Ubuntu in particular, try to shield users from most of that, but the complexity can still be a challenge to those who don't have a background with either Unix or Linux. Windows traditionally has been used in both corporate and home settings, still has an overwhelming market share in both. Microsoft's extensive enterprise applications will allow Windows to maintain that position for the foreseeable future, even though Macs now show up in the management suite in addition to the design department. Mac OS machines continue to have a grip on the graphic design team, but there, Windows systems have made some inroads. Additionally, software developers sometimes gravitate to Macs, at least for personal use. That's because of the Unix platform on which the Mac OS was built. One important point is that there's no right choice and no wrong choice. All operating systems provide services to applications that run on the computer. All operating systems manage peripherals such as disk drives and video monitors and internet connections. All operating systems have procedures that allow the computer to be configured to suit the needs of the users. Unfortunately, operating system wars persist. Some Linux users consider Windows and Mac OS systems to be useless. Some Windows users say that Mac owners should get real computers. And some Mac owners continue to claim illogically that the Mac OS is totally secure. An operating system is an operating system. I said that already. Most of the computers I work with do run Windows 10, but I also use a Mac OS computer nearly every day. It runs Sierra, and usually there's at least one Linux computer on the premises. And there's also a Chromebook that runs Google's Chrome OS. Those users who must run Windows Office Suite or Adobe Creative Cloud applications essentially have a binary choice, Windows or Mac. While it is possible to run these programs using an application such as Wine on a Linux system, it's not particularly easy or straightforward, and they won't run at all on a Chromebook. Switching from one operating system to another seems like it should be easy, but it can be troublesome. One office worker I know listened a bit too naively to a co-worker who preferred Macs and administers Linux systems. He told her how easy Macs are to use, so she bought one. Her experience has not been pleasant. The Mac does everything her Windows machine did, but in significantly different ways. Her next computer will not be a Mac. Switching from the Mac OS to Windows, from either Windows or Mac OS to Linux, or from Linux to Windows or Mac OS can be equally distressing. Probably the easiest possible transition would be from Linux to Mac OS because so much of the underlying operation is the same. So if you're currently a Mac OS user and you're content with the system, there's really no good reason to look at Windows computers. The reverse is also true. Switching systems isn't a trivial task. You'll need to learn new keystrokes for familiar operations, deal with new methods to configure the computer, and understand the substantial differences between the way disk drives are mounted under Linux and Mac OS as compared with the Windows system of simply assigning letters to the drives. Every operating system has good points, and every one has challenges. Choosing the one that's right for you requires considering both sides. Nearly every application, driver, or game has a version that runs under Windows. Microsoft has adequate technical support, not outstanding, but adequate, and there's no shortage of online resources that can provide answers to questions, and sometimes the answers are even right. Windows accepts a huge array of hardware and is highly configurable. Microsoft's new policy means that you'll never have to pay for an updated version of Windows as long as the device it's installed on remains in service. On the downside, Windows is the target for most malware, so you will need some protective applications. Because Windows accepts hardware and drivers from thousands of developers, conflicts are common. The Mac OS is built on BSD Unix. Because the operating system has native support for read, write, and execute permissions on a per-file basis, it is more resistant to malware. Even so, Macs do need protective software. The Mac OS runs only on Apple computers, so hardware is strictly controlled, and that all but eliminates hardware and driver conflicts. One small disclaimer here, it is possible to run the Mac OS on non-Apple hardware. It is not easy. Macs are considerably more expensive than equivalent Windows machines, though, and not all applications that are available for Windows computers will run natively on a Mac. But because Macs now use Intel CPUs, it is possible to run many Windows applications using an emulator. Linux? That's based on Unix, and it's free. It is, however, just the operating system kernel. To be a full operating system, it needs additional software, which is also free, from the developer of what's called a distro or distribution. Ubuntu, Red Hat, Fedora, and literally hundreds of other distros exist. Some distros are easy to set up and use, but all of them require considerable knowledge to configure. No Windows or Mac programs run natively under Linux and open source applications such as LibreOffice and OpenOffice usually are somewhat less comprehensive than commercial software. And then there's Chrome. Chrome isn't what most people would think of as an operating system because it depends on the Chrome browser to provide an interface for most of the apps. For that reason, Chromebooks are not likely to assume a dominant position or even a secondary position on desktop or notebooks in homes or in offices but these small and inexpensive machines do have a place. Chromebooks rely on Google's applications. They expect an Internet connection and a Google account. If Gmail, Google Calendar, and Google Drive are your main applications, a Chromebook might be all you need. But if you depend on Apple, Microsoft, or Adobe applications, a Chromebook will be less appealing. Adobe's Creative Cloud and Microsoft's Office suite aren't available for Chromebooks, there is a Microsoft Office Online, but it's a shadow of the full suite. Chromebooks don't have a lot of storage either, but they do connect to Google Drive, so you have essentially unlimited cloud storage. Microsoft Office suite files can be saved to the cloud and imported into Google's apps. Although this is a good solution for occasional needs, it's not a good choice. If you need to work with a team that uses Microsoft applications, too much back and forth can lose data in the translation. Most of the new Chromebooks can use a wide variety of Android applications. That opens the door to games, messaging, and productivity tools. Although Chromebooks expect to have an internet connection, several hundred Chrome apps will work if you don't have access to the internet. They run in offline mode. So while a Chromebook might not be your primary computer, it might be the perfect device when you're on the road. So the bottom line here is just choose wisely, The latest computer from apple or one of the pc or chromebook manufacturers might look really good but the computer's abilities don't depend on its looks those who thrive on change might find switching from one type of computer to another entertaining and enjoyable those who are change averse will not enjoy the experience so i offer these general guidelines in conclusion if you use a windows computer and you find that it's suitable for your needs your next computer should probably run Windows. If you use an Apple computer and you find that it is suitable for your needs, your next computer should probably be a Mac. And if you use a computer that runs a Linux distro and you find that it is suitable for your needs, guess what? Your next computer probably should run a Linux distro. Mm Have you ever moved an application's window slightly in one direction, then decided you wanted to move it the other way? If you did, perhaps Windows then helped you by minimizing all of the other Windows on the screen, or screens. This feature's been around since Windows 7, and I can safely say that I never, ever want Windows to do this. Usually I'm trying to locate one of the other Windows, and having them all disappear doesn't help. Well, this behavior can be disabled. I'm reminded of this because the feature returned following the update to the Windows 10 Creators Edition. That's to be expected because major upgrades often return many and possibly all registry settings to their defaults. That's not a bad thing if you have a list of things you've changed. If you'd like to make this behavior cease, you'll need to use the Registry Editor and the usual cautions apply. I have a link from the Techfighter Worldwide website this week to a list of really good precautions to take if you're going to be editing the registry, so check that out. The registry key described here is the same in Windows 7, 8, and 10, and if you read the tech support alert list of precautions to take before editing the registry, you'll have noticed that the number one rule is to make a backup of the registry. An easy way to do that is to create a restore point. Windows 10 has hidden this feature several levels deep, but you can use the start menu to find it easily. Just press the Windows key and type create. One of the items in the list should be create a restore point, so click that. That will open the system properties dialog. Confirm that protection is turned on for at least the boot drive, and then click create. Fill in the name and click create again. In a few moments, a success dialog will appear. Close that, and you now have a restore point. So now it's time to start the registry editor. Press the Windows key and type regedit, R-E-G-E-D-I-T. You have to type the whole thing and then click the regedit.exe link. Locate hkey current user. Click the icon at the left of the name to expand it. Click the icon to the left of software and expand that. Scroll down to policies, click the icon at the left to expand it. Click the icon beside Microsoft to expand that, then the icon beside Windows to expand it. If a key called Explorer exists under the Windows key. You'll be using it. This key probably won't exist though, so you'll need to create it. With the Windows key selected, right-click and choose New Key from the context menu. Name the key Explorer. Then right-click the Explorer key and create a new DWORD 32-bit value called No Window Minimizing Shortcuts. Check the TechBiter Worldwide website for the spelling and formatting of that. Then double-click No Windows Minimizing Shortcuts and set the value to 1. Check your work. Confirm that the new value is 1, that No Windows Minimizing Shortcuts has been created under Explorer, and that Explorer has been created under Windows. It doesn't hurt to walk the whole path all the way back up to HKEYCURRENTUSER just to make sure everything is okay. Then close the registry editor and reboot the computer. Now, when you shake a window, windows will no longer close all of the other windows. (music) Biometric identifications are supposed to be totally secure, right? So you may think that fingerprint scanner on your smartphone is the most secure method you can use. Well, maybe it's time to rethink that. Vindu Goel, writing in the New York Times, says that the technology isn't as safe as you probably think it is. My Google Project Fi phone has a fingerprint user. I use it, and I think it's pretty cool. But while such wizardry is convenient, Goel says, it also has left a gaping security hole. It seems that researchers at New York University and Michigan State University have determined that smartphone fingerprint readers can easily be fooled by fake fingerprints digitally composed of many common features found in human prints. So how much risk is there? The researchers were able to create composite fingerprints that unlocked more than half of the phones they were tested on. Yikes! Seems to be a reasonable response to that, but there is a side note. It's probably not as bad as it might seem. The researchers did not test their approach with real phones, and other security experts said the match rate would be significantly lower in real-life conditions. But even if the success rate is reduced by half, that would still be more than a quarter of all phones. Should you continue to use your finger to unlock your phone? Gold's article says, It's almost certainly not as worrisome as it's presented, but it almost certainly is pretty darn bad, according to Andy Adler, professor of systems and computer engineering at Carleton University in Canada. He studies biometric security systems. If all I want to do is take your phone and use your Apple Pay to buy stuff, if I can get into one in ten phones, that's not bad odds, he says. Fingerprints might be more secure than four-digit security codes, but maybe not. The actual risk is difficult to quantify, the article says. Apple and Google keep many details of their fingerprint technology secret, and the dozens of companies that make Android phones can adapt Google's standard design in ways that reduce the level of security. I've noticed that my Google Pixel phone requires me to enter a security code whenever the phone has been restarted and occasionally at other times less risk might be achieved if the phone would require using the security code the first time the phone is used every day, and then allow the fingerprint after that. And one researcher suggested that the fingerprint could be used unless the phone has been idle for an hour, and then the security code would be required once again. You can read the full article on the New York Times website. There is a link from the TechBiter Worldwide website. And while you're on the TechBiter Worldwide website, Check out Spare Parts. That's the only place you'll find it. This week, Data as a Service claims to improve business resiliency. A Dutch philosopher would like us to understand that we have entered what he calls a new evolutionary phase. And your smartphone can help when the weather turns nasty. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide